Hey guys, this is Georgia with Ancient Aliens, and you're listening to That One Time I Was Abducted by Aliens with Jamie and Bree. You're listening to That One Time I Was Abducted by Aliens. I'm Jamie. I'm Bree, and we're two sides of the coin. Welcome back to another episode, guys. Tonight, we're going to be wrapping up the Eisenhower administration. You know, a lot went down during the Eisenhower administration. We know that there's MJ-12 documents debriefing President Eisenhower on their existence and their purpose, which also included the presence of UFOs. President Eisenhower allegedly meets face-to-face with ETs and forms a treaty with one of them, which in turn allows abductions on the American people to occur in exchange for technology. Underground bases are established to be utilized for experiments and advancement of technology alongside with ETs. So if this treaty is to be true, what does this all really mean? And would President Eisenhower remain in control of the entire ET subject and our government and military involvement with them? A lot must have happened in between then and when Eisenhower left office. And his famous farewell speech hints at unease about the situation he was leaving behind. There's a lot of people who say that the treaty kind of went off the deep end a little bit, Mm -hmm. where in the beginning they were really following it and they were like, okay, we're only going to take, you know, our seven people and we'll return them and everything's fine and dandy. But then I think that when the aliens realized, like, who the hell is actually going to regulate this? (laughs) They were like, fuck it, we'll do whatever we want. And they just started abducting people left and right, which... Around that time is when we have a really big spike in people Mm -hmm. admitting, oh my God, I've been abducted, or I think I was abducted, or something like that. So it all plays into the timeline of the treaty, so that's really interesting. It really does. And there was a really interesting interview that took place during the citizen hearing on UFO disclosure. And um, Richard Dolan had interviewed a former CIA agent who was 77 at the time. And this man said he had to get top secret White House Q clearance. He used an artificial name during the whole thing, not his real name, to get his clearance. So his badge said a completely different name. He said that Project Blue Book was mostly fictitious. So it wasn't real at all. It was more like a front. Mm -hmm. And so this man's job was to collect all of the UFO reports and sightings that were happening. And the first time he tried to come out about this, he actually spoke on the phone with Linda Moulton Howell. But the phones were tapped and he received a visit from a typical men in black type of situation, men in black suits that showed up and told him to be quiet. And his non-disclosure agreement was about 50 years. So I believe this is seven years after he tried to come out with Linda Moulton Howell is when he sat down with Richard Dolan, and I think she was present at the same time. And so he talks about this again. He's a very, very sick man. He had some serious kidney issues, and so he was told he had months to live. So I think it wasn't just that it had been so long, because I think this happened in 2013. Mm-hmm. I'm sure because he was terminally ill that it was just like a fuck it situation. But I feel like that's what happens with a lot of people, especially in this community. At the end, when they're on their deathbed, everyone's just like, fuck it. Let's just let it all out. The way his voice sounds, how he's carrying himself, it's just like, oh my gosh, is this going to be like the last moment this person lives? Mm -hmm. Which I think is another great example that we've talked about before with like, what do these people really have to gain from coming out with things like this? Especially on their deathbed. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense to me. So he said that in 1958, he and his boss met with President Eisenhower and that Eisenhower was trying to get information on the UFO subject that apparently Majestic 
12 was leaving out, wasn't informing him on. According to this man, Eisenhower told him, quote, we called the people in from Majestic 12 from Area 51 and S4, but they told us that the government had no jurisdiction over what they were doing. I want you and your boss to fly out there. I want you to give them a personal message. I want you to tell them, whoever is in charge, tell them that they have this coming week to get into Washington and to report to me. And if they don't, I'm going to get the first army from Colorado. We're going to go over and take the base over. I don't care what kind of classified material you got. We're going to rip this thing apart. So he's threatening Majestic 12 or whoever is in charge over there that Mm -hmm. if they don't inform him like they had previously promised that he's going to invade them with the first army. I think that this is an interesting case of like the shadow government maybe starting to pop up. Oh, yeah. Because I don't think Majestic 12 on their own was like, mm, we're just not going to inform the president. <laughs> it had to have be at, at that point because they had such high ranking people in there and people who were friends with Eisenhower, you know? It's like that had to have been somebody higher, higher up who was like, we're, we're going to keep this one secret. We're not going to talk about this. Yeah. So the CIA agents, they fly to Area 51 and S4 and then they report back to Eisenhower and Nixon and apparently also the FBI director J. Edgar Hoover was was also present during the debriefing, but he told them that they saw several garage-type doors, and inside of them were several different alien crafts, including a craft from Roswell. And he also talked about different types of greys and said that his boss was able to meet with a grey that they had there. He also said that they got to see early versions of the model of the SR-71, which was the Blackbird. They saw U-2. They saw various different models of really under cover craft that the government was working on that most people didn't know about at Mm -hmm. that time. And when he came back to tell Eisenhower all this, that he was stunned. And for the first time, Eisenhower really appeared completely shocked. See, and I don't quite understand them saying that Eisenhower seems so shocked by all of this information. Because if we're going to take a lot of these stories to be truth, like, didn't he just have an alien living in the White House with him? (laughs) So, like, why is it that he's so shocked that at Area 51 there's more aliens and alien crafts? You know what I mean? It seems a little bit interesting to me that he would be shocked at some of this information if we were to believe that all the other stuff that we talked about prior happens to be true. You know what I mean? What part was it really that he's shocked about? Was he shocked that maybe they did have all of this hayway on all these technology and all these things happening that he just didn't have any idea about? Was he shocked that maybe they were holding an alien prisoner? Who knows? Or is it that this is actually the first time he's hearing about all of this, which means that he didn't make a treaty? Yeah, and that's what where it all gets a little bit weird. And when we get into this, you know, alternative history kind of realm where it's hard because we have all these people who are storytellers who are telling us, you know, in their eyes what happened. Mm-hmm. And I would be more inclined to believe it if all of these stories were more weaving in and out of each other's timelines. But it seems like this one in particular, the, you know, this guy is saying that, you know, the president is shocked by all of this information. And I just I find that hard to believe unless this is his first encounter with aliens, which means that everything else we've talked about has to be false. I feel like it could be two things. It could be one that obviously Eisenhower knew 
about their presence and what Majestic 12 was doing, but was just waiting for them to get back to him. So he didn't have any face-to-face meeting with them. Or that he did have this face-to-face meeting with him, but what he's completely shocked about is all of the different things that have come about since then, and he's just been kept in the dark about it. There's also the people that did see Eisenhower step out of Air Force One and into that flying saucer when they apparently made this treaty. Mm -hmm. The words were that it looked like Eisenhower. So it was someone that they could only assume was Was Eisenhower. Eisenhower. Now my next question is, is did they come to this conclusion on their deathbed? That I don't know. It's just all of the accounts. Of course, there's people that say that they saw him there, but the people that saw him step out of Air Force One and into the saucer that it looked like him. It was someone that looked just like him. So they assumed it was Eisenhower. So I'm asking the question, if and what if Majestic 12 had someone that looked like Eisenhower and they used this person to conduct business with aliens aliens and meet them because if this was the president that steps out of Air Force One by himself. Which would never happen. And into a flying saucer that is allegedly of an alien origin. Mm-hmm. Would he really be doing that all by himself? No, absolutely not. There was not. no no one else that was accompanying him onto that flying saucer. So you're saying that they either have a clone or a <laughs> look-alike version of Eisenhower, which makes sense that he would be all up in arms about this Area 51 bullshit because he really didn't know anything about it because they were just using someone who looked like him to deal with all of that business. I think it's a possibility. Okay. If Majestic 12 was to stay really true to its purpose, and if it was, you know, supposed to be like a government within a government, regardless of whatever president was in and out of office. They're going to have a lookalike of whatever one it is. Yeah, I would imagine. Why would they even need the president's okay? Well, then here's my next question, though. Do you think aliens are stupid enough to know that that's not actually the president? There's also a possibility that they really didn't even give a shit. They just wanted to talk to somebody. I feel like they just wanted to speak to someone in charge. Mm -hmm. And the overall consensus of whoever was watching all these witnesses assumed it was Eisenhower. And maybe it was made to look that way. I think it's so hard with Eisenhower. Half of the reason why all of this works is because everything is so compartmentalized that everyone has a piece of the story. And then they each have a different version of what happened. But there's one thing that actually did occur. Well, that's like when you say, you know, there's three sides of the truth. There's their side, your side, and that, you know, the actual truth. I think that we're backing ourselves into a very deep rabbit hole of what ifs and what could it be trying to explain it. Could it be? Could it not be? Well, that's this whole subject, though. That's what we do. Oh, all right. I'll agree with you on that one, for sure. Can I ask you a question? Mm -hmm. Do you think that they ever actually had alien bodies at Area 51? I don't know. Here's what, like, in my heart of hearts, what I know. Area 51 has always been a place where they've been dealing with experimental crafts, whether that be airplanes or whatever it is. I totally believe that, that they could be back engineering UFOs there, big whoop-dee-doo. I personally have a hard time believing that alien bodies were there, personally. Well, then you'd have to think about that would really have to go to if there were alien bodies anywhere in an underground base. Well, I think that they were definitely at an underground base. I just don't think Area 51 was that place. Hmm. I think that Area 51, the hype has been put out there that it's, it's, you know, alien central to the world. 
as a disinformation act. Or maybe it really was, and then since then, because of all this stuff has come out about it, then people move around. But I think it definitely started out that way. Well, that's what I'm saying. I, I believe that they were always back engineering crafts there, you know, whether it be stuff for the military or if it was actual UFOs and things like that. There was definitely Area 51 is experimental airplanes and crafts and things like that without a doubt. It's just to what extent is it that we don't really know. And I guess everyone has their own personal thing about it. But I just think that it's so well known inside the world and the media that Area 51 has something to do with aliens, which makes me think that aliens can't be there because there's no way that information would have gotten out like that, you know? I just think not anymore. I think for sure it would be stupid to have it still there. And we will actually have to do an Area 51 episode because that is a big chunk of the secret space program. Oh, for sure. So that also reminds me since you brought that up. But you guys should go and check out the interview. Jeremy Corbell actually filmed it. So you can find it on his website at extraordinarybeliefs.com. You can also find it at the citizen hearing on disclosure.com. I'm sure that they have it on YouTube. It's a very interesting interview. So let's just say for the sake of the podcast story moving forward that all of this information is true. And so it makes perfect sense that Eisenhower would say certain things during his farewell speech. And keep in mind that you have to read in between the lines when it comes comes to his speech. But he's clearly warning the American people here. And it may have to do with the military industrial complex taking control of this issue that is now bigger than the president. And as usual, we want you guys to make up your own mind about it. So for those of you who haven't heard it yet, we're going to leave you with Bree reading the farewell speech. So gather around the campfire. We're going to take a trip back to 1961, and we're going to listen to President Eisenhower. Everyone get your sticks to whittle. We are going to sit in our rocking chairs, have some of this here fine moonshine, and we're going to listen to the great and powerful Bree tell us a beautiful story about a president that once lived and talked to aliens. Yo, he's talking some shit, though. When I listen back to it, like, over and over, I'm like, oh, why did we not listen to him? And it's just so interesting. So interesting. Because we're doomed to never listen to the good information that's in front of us. I don't know. Fuck you, Mountain View, California. Peace. My fellow Americans, three days from now, after half a century in the service of our country, I shall lay down the responsibilities of office as, in traditional and solemn ceremony, the authority of the presidency is vested in my successor. This evening, I come to you with a message of leave-taking and farewell, and to share a few final thoughts with you, my countrymen. Like every other citizen, I wish the new president, and all who will labor with him, Godspeed. I pray that the coming years will be blessed with peace and prosperity for all. Our people expect their president and the Congress to find essential agreement on issues of great moment, the wise resolution of which will better shape the future of the nation. My own relations with the Congress, which began on a remote, tenuous basis when, long ago, a member of the Senate appointed me to West Point, have since ranged in the intimate during the war and immediate post-war period, and finally to the mutually interdependent during these past eight years. In this final relationship, the Congress and the administration have, on most vital issues, cooperated well to serve the national good rather than mere partisanship, and so have assured that the business of the nation should go forward. So my official relationship with the Congress ends in a feeling, on my part, of gratitude that we have been able to do so much together. We now stand 10 years past the midpoint of a century that has witnessed four major wars among great nations. Three of these involved our own country. 
Despite these holocausts, America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. Understandably proud of this preeminence, we yet realize that America's leadership and prestige depend not merely upon our unmatched material progress, riches, and military strength, but now on how we use our power in the interests of world peace and human betterment. Throughout America's adventure and free government, our basic purposes have been to keep the peace, to foster progress and human achievement, and to enhance liberty, dignity, and integrity among people and among nations. To strive for less would be unworthy of a free and religious people. Any failure traceable to arrogance or our lack of comprehension or readiness to sacrifice would inflict upon us grievous hurt both at home and abroad. Progress towards these noble goals is persistently threatened by the conflict now engulfing the world. It commands our whole attention, absorbs our very beings. We face a hostile ideology, global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose, and insidious in method. Unhappily, the danger it promises to be of indefinite duration. To meet it successfully, there is called for not so much the emotional and transitory sacrifices of crisis, but rather those which enable us to carry forward steadily, surely, and without complaint, the burdens of a prolonged and complex struggle with liberty at stake. Only thus shall we remain, despite every provocation on our charted course toward permanent peace and human betterment. Crisis there will continue to be, in meeting them, whether foreign or domestic, great or small, there is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. A huge increase in newer elements of our defense, development, or unrealistic programs to cure every ill in agriculture, a dramatic expansion in basic and applied research, these and many other possibilities, each possibly promising in itself, may be suggested as the only way to the road we wish to travel. But much proposal must be weighed in the light of a broader consideration, the need to maintain balance in and among national programs, balance between the private and the public economy, balance between cost and hope, for advantage balance between the clearly necessary and the uncomfortably desirable, balance between our essential requirements as a nation and the duties imposed by the nation upon the individual. Balance between action of the moment and the national welfare of the future. Good judgment seeks balance and progress. Lack of it eventually finds imbalance and frustration. The record of many decades stands as proof that our people and their government have, in the main, understood these truths and have responded to them well in the face of stress and threat. But threats, new in kind or degree, consistently arise. I mentioned two only. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be mighty, ready for instant action, so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known of any of my predecessors in peacetime or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But now we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. 
we have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security more than the net income of all United States corporations. This conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the accusation of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for this disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. Akin to and largely responsible for the sweeping changes in our industrial military posture has been the technological revolution during recent decades. In this revolution, research has become central. It also becomes more formalized, complex, and costly. A steadily increased share is conducted for, by, or at the direction of the federal government. Today, the solitary inventor tinkering in his shop has been overshadowed by task forces of scientists and laboratories and testing fields. In the same fashion, the free university, historically the fountainhead of free ideas and scientific discoveries, has experienced a revolution in the conduct of research. Partly because of the huge costs involved, a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. For every old blackboard, there are now hundreds of new electronic computers. The prospect of domination for the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. Yet in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. It is the task of statesmanship to mold, to balance, and to integrate these and other forces, new and old, within the principles of our democratic system ever aiming towards the supreme goals of our free society. Another factor in maintaining balance involves the element of time. As we peer into society's future, we, you, and I, and our government must avoid the impulse to live only for today plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. We cannot mortgage the material assets of our grandchildren without risking the loss also of their political and spiritual heritage. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. Down the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world is ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect. Such a confederation must be one of equals. The weakest must come to the conference table with the same confidence as do we, protected as we are by our moral, economic, and military strength. That table, though scarred by many past frustrations, cannot be abandoned for the certain agony of the battlefield.
disarmament with mutual honor and confidence is a continuing imperative. Together we must learn how to compose difference, not with arms, but with intellect and decent purpose. Because this need is so sharp and apparent, I confess that I lay down my official responsibilities in this field with a definite sense of disappointment. As one who has witnessed the horror and the lingering sadness of war, as one who knows that another war could utterly destroy this civilization, which has been so slowly and painfully built over thousands of years, I wish I could say tonight that a lasting peace is in sight. Happily, I can say that war has been avoided. Steadily, progress toward our ultimate goal has been made, but so much remains to be done. As a private citizen, I shall never cease to do what little I can to help the world advance along that road. So in this my last good night to you as your president, I thank you for the many opportunities you have given me for public service and war and peace. I trust that in this service you find something worthy. As for the rest of it, I know you will find ways to improve performance in the future. You and I, my fellow citizens, need to be strong in our faith that all nations, under God, will reach the goal of peace with justice. May we be ever unswerving in devotion to principle, confident but humble with power, diligent in pursuit of the nation's great goals. To all the peoples of the world, I once more give expression to America's prayerful and continuing inspiration. We pray that peoples of all faith, all races, may have their great human needs satisfied, that those now denied opportunity shall come to enjoy it to the full, and that all who yearns for freedom may experience its spiritual blessings, that those who have freedom will understand, also, its heavy responsibilities, that all who are insensitive to the needs of others will learn charity, that the scourges of poverty, disease, and ignorance will be made to disappear from the earth, and that, in the goodness of time, all people will come to live together in a peace guaranteed by the binding force of mutual respect and love. Thank you.